Working Cows Podcast, Episode 161. Welcome to the podcast that gives producers a platform to discuss and share paradigm-challenging practices. Practices that have increased the effectiveness of their operation and the joy that their families have received from this lifestyle. Howdy, everybody. This is Clay Connery, host of the Working Cows podcast, powered by the Global Ag Network. Uh, really excited to have another episode for you. Uh, we are talking today to David Pratt. He is the CEO Emeritus of Ranch Management Consultants. They are the people behind the Ranching for Profit School. He's, of course, handed that leadership over to Dallas Mount, but he has stayed busy uh, in his emeritus status with a new book that he's written called The Turnaround, A Rancher's Story. And I'm really excited to talk to him about the the how, what, and why of this book today. And uh, really excited to have him back once again on the podcast. Dave, thanks for joining me. Welcome back. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You uh, have just released a new book uh, currently available on Amazon. The link to that book will be in the show notes page at workingcows.net slash 161, workingcows.net slash 161. And that book is The Turnaround, A Rancher's Story. Can you tell me a little bit about why you wrote the book? Well, there's two reasons. One, I'm retired. I'm not dead. And so I needed a project. The number, the second reason is this is a project that needed to be done. In running ranch management consultants for 20 years, the last five of those years, I've been been wanting to rewrite what we call the the blue book. It's a book called Putting Profit into Ranching that was written by Stan Parsons uh, almost 40 years ago. The story in that book felt dated. What that book did is get people familiar with the ranching for profit principles before the school. Everybody that enroll, we would send them a copy of the book and some questions we'd ask them to answer, and they'd come to the school ready to roll, having done that. But the story felt a little dated, and there were some things we've added to the school that weren't in the book. And so I had been wanting to rewrite that. But in preparing the company to transfer to Dallas and you know, just in the in the grind of running a company, uh, there wasn't a lot of spare time to devote to a project like this. So when uh, I stepped back, Dallas asked me if I was interested in taking on this project, and I jumped at the chance. And about six or seven months later, we have the manuscript, and it's gone through editing and all the rest of it. And I'll tell you what, the last month of putting together a project like this, just about, this is why I have no hair left. I think (laughs) I pulled it all out. Um, with all the little detail work, uh, but uh, it's it's out, it's ready to go, it's on Amazon, and I'm really pleased with the way it came out. We've had a couple of um, uh, alumni who are also writers. John Marble in Western Oregon is a terrific writer, uh, pub- published author, and a terrific rancher, and a good friend, and he reviewed it. And I think that was probably the most fun of the writing process to, was to get his uh, inside jokes written in the margin of the book. Um, I had a tar- hard time taking some of his edits seriously because I was laughing so hard at the, as I was reading them. But he and uh, a couple of other folks I asked to review it made some really good suggestions, and I'm, I'm really pleased with the way it came out. Yeah, very good. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it and, and looking at looking at it and, and reading through it. I am uh, enrolled to go through the Ranching for Profit School for the first time 
in January of 2020. So uh, looking or 2021, sorry, looking forward to that. And uh, this will be a good a good tool to to prepare my my mind. Um, what would you say are the benefits of of doing that pre work on the front end? Uh, you said kind of familiarizing them with the principles. What are some of those principles that they're going to get out of of the the book itself? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things with the pre work. One is not just to be familiar with the principles, but starting to look at your own place through a new lens. Uh, you know, when it comes to using cell grazing and looking at the health of the land, we have people who, after a year coming back from the school, will tell us, gee, Dave, I'm seeing things I never saw before. But the problem is they never looked before, or at least they never looked in the same way. You know, they're looking with a, through a different paradigm. Instead of looking across the land, they're looking down into the land, and they're, they're seeing different things that were probably, at least to some extent, already there, but they didn't notice them before. Mm. Uh, and it's the same thing with, with the book. By having certain principles in your mind months before you come to the school, you start looking at your business differently. And you'll bring different questions to the school than you might have otherwise. Every chapter in the book, at least the first, the book is divided into two parts. And the first part is economics and finance. But it's it's told through the story of a rancher that's struggling and some friends who've gone through the school and are sharing principles with him. And he's starting to see his ranch through new eyes. Each one of those first 11 chapters in the first part of the book has a task associated with it, or at least one task. Um, there's things about finding things that are efficient but not effective. And the definition there is we talk about efficiency as hitting the bullseye. Effectiveness is shooting at the right target. It doesn't do much good to hit a bullseye if you're shooting at the wrong target. So uh, starting to identify what are the things we do really well, but are those really the things we ought to be doing? Another task is to identify fixed assets in your business versus working capital, which may sound really dry, but hopefully it's told in a way that's not dry at all. Uh, fixed assets essentially are things you intend to keep, whereas working capital are things you intend to sell. Uh, fixed assets would be things like land and machinery and, and breeding stock, whereas working capital would be the calf crop, the inputs into the calf crop. And the reason this is important is because when all of your money is tied up in fixed assets, and most ranchers would have 90, 95, even 97% of their money in fixed assets. Mm. The reason that's a problem is because when all your money is tied up in things you intend to keep, there's nothing left over to sell. And so you've heard the, the old story that in ranching, you're, you're land rich and cash poor or, or wealthy on the balance sheet and broke at the bank. Well, that's why, because we have our, our assets uh, or our money misallocated. Now, conventional ranching means it's all going to be in fixed assets. But I'll tell you what, if you're a young person starting from scratch or trying to grow a business, you better not have your money tied up in fixed assets. And the chapter explains why, and you'll start exploring things to do about it. Um, there's another task in another chapter on setting a profit target. You know, most people do what they do. They want to crunch the numbers on what they're doing and whatever's left over, if there is anything, they'll call profit. And usually there isn't anything left over if you're doing the numbers if you're doing them right, you're not going to have anything left over, usually in an economic analysis, at least in a conventional range. But we don't do it that way. We don't start with what are you currently doing? What's left over? We start with what do you want to have left over? You know, what, how much profit do you need to make? And then work it backwards to say, what are you going to have to do to make that? Which gets down to an even more basic question. Probably sounds like a kind of a dumb question, but it's a really important question. And that's why do you want to make a profit? 
what's your profit for? Uh, is it to reinvest in the ranch? Is it to invest off the farm? Is it to pay off debt? Is it to pay dividends to shareholders? And in what form do you want that profit to take? I mean, we could just grow equity. Well, that's great. But what if there's some people who want a dividend out of this thing? So it gets into how do you establish a profit target? We'd like people to come to this to the school having an idea of how much profit they want to make. And then it gets into the seven steps of the economic process, everything from a breeding herd statistics chart and a stock flow to calculating gross margin and calculating profit and loss. And we'd like people to take a stab at those things before they come to the class. And we should, <laughs> I know if they try doing those things, they'll come to the class with a different set of questions than they will if, they're, if those things are la uh, launched at them for the first time at the school. So there's a lot of substance in, in this thing. There's a lot of... Uh, whether somebody comes to the school or not, the book does stand on its own and these tasks will stand on their own and help them calculate the gross margin and get through a profit and loss statement. And how is the book written? You mentioned that the, the, one of the, one of the pro projects that is in the book is told in such a way as it, it won't be dry. So how, how is the book written itself? The book is written, it's a, a f fictional story, except it's not really fictional. <laughs> I mean, it's based on... <laughs> People I've met in the 30 years I've been teaching the ranching for profit school. So the the situations and the stories and the problems are real. It's just that, the, as Joe Friday and Dragnet would say, the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Um, but it's a story of two ranch families. One in one primarily, they attend a, a ranching for profit workshop. One is attending and as a refresher, they've already been through the school and they have brought their neighbors with them who haven't been through the school. And the drive home, they're discussing what made sense and what didn't and clarifying some things. Uh, and then once they get home, they decide to work together to coach one another up. You know, it's always easier to see how somebody else ought to be doing things. So they agree to work together to help them apply these concepts to their ranches. And it's the story of them applying these processes and the changes they make. What are some of the, the steps that people go through or, or that the school and the book can help people take to go to flip that equation on its head of being land rich and cash poor. Well, that's uh, that. That is a big question. That's probably worth a podcast on its own. <laughs> the basic tasks that we ask people to start looking at at the school, and it's not something you're going to come up with. Well, sometimes you will have an aha moment, and it'll be clear. But usually, it's going to take some some work and some ex exploration to do this. And certainly, there's some vetting of any idea you come up with. But there's really two choices when you when you find that most of your assets are in land and machinery and, and breeding stock. There are really two choices. And one is what we call capitalizing the asset. And the other one is to do what we call concessionizing the asset. So capitalizing and concessionizing. Um, capitalizing, simply put, means to lose it or more accurately to divest yourself of it and to take the money that was in that asset and to put it in something else that will actually generate income. Concessionizing means to use it. So use it or use it as concessionizing and lose it as capitalizing. By using it, I mean to figure out a way to generate cash flow from it. Now, this is far from a recommendation, but the most common example of capitalizing some, capitalizing, say, the land might be to do something like put a conservation easement on it where you get paid for the development rights. If you were never intending to use the development rights, 
well, maybe there's value to be had there and that money could be put to some other use that could generate income. So that would be an example of capitalizing a resource. Uh, we have, uh, there's a couple that went through the school years ago and was in Executive Link. And they came up with the idea of actually selling their ranch and then leasing it back on a 99-year lease from the people who used to lease the ranch for hunting. So they sold it to the hunters and now they lease the grass back for livestock. Well, that's another example of capitalizing the ranch, of pulling the $6 million of value out of the land and being able to put that into other things that, that make money while still maintaining control of the, of the resource. So those would be examples of capitalizing. Concessionizing would be normally developing another enterprise. Uh, rancher in Kansas. Uh, this, again, and this is not a recommendation that the person ought to do this, just an example of what somebody did. Uh, he concessionized the wind. Uh, he gets paid by a wind company uh, annually. And, and you know, Some people will sell the easement to the wind. That would be capitalizing. He concessionized it, so he gets an annual payment from, mm. from the wind company. He also developed another, a company to help cons or that consults with ranchers who want to develop uh, uh, wind enterprises. And so there's another concession example of concessionizing, develop, building a business based on his experience that helps other people work through what he worked through. Um, so that would be an example of, of concessionizing. But those would be, I guess there's one other choice, and that's to just uh, say, well, gosh darn it, this is the way ranching is. I'll be land rich and cash poor. And I think that's the option that most people, it's, it, it's not a very success, successful option, but it's the one most people choose because it's the easiest. You know, you know the old story about the two frogs and you throw one in a pot of boiling water and he hops out immediately. Mm. And then the other one you throw in a pot of cool water and he sits there and you warm up the water and he, he comfortably cooks to death. And I think sometimes agriculture and farmers and ranchers are just like that second frog. We're very comfortably cooking to death as the water around us gets warmer and warmer. The uh, the cost to produce a calf continues to go up and up. So it's uh, yeah, it's a it, it there there continues to be less and less margin, and you know, kind of that example of of slowly cooking to death. Yeah, I was talking to an Australian uh, colleague of mine the other day, and he said the best thing that could happen to Australia agriculture is for diesel to go to twenty dollars a gallon. <laughs> yeah, because we'd be forced to find another way to do things. You know, as long as prices creep, you know, as long as it's uh, five cents here and ten cents there, and next year it's another five cents or ten cents. As long as it creeps, we'll you know we'll just oh well, darn it, it's getting tougher and tougher. But we really won't make any significant change. But if things were to jump, I mean, to double or triple in price, then our hand would be forced. We'd have to look at some pretty bold action. But that the creep is insidious, and that as counterintuitive as it might seem, we'd probably be better off as an industry if, rather than creeping along, uh, costs lurched so that uh, we'd be slapped in the face and face and forced to do something about it. What do you have mind in mind with the title, uh, the turnaround? Is is the turnaround uh, more about how they're doing things, or is it more about how they're thinking about what they're doing? Yes. <laughs> I actually struggled with the title quite a bit. You know, the title ought to probably ought to drive things, but there's so, at first I was calling it a ranching for profit story. And I thought, well, that's pretty limiting because I'm, I'm probably going to want to write more ranching for profit stories. Um, 
but as we started looking at the characters in this book and uh, both the, the two primary characters that it's that the stories are based on but also some of the ancillary characters they all had something in common and that's that they all either need a drastic turnaround or they've all made significant turnarounds in, in what they're doing um, and it was actually my daughter that recommended the title after she read the book so and she she said well it's obvious dad you need to call it a turnaround hmm. so so that's what we called it and how how do you feel this book is is different from your your other book healthy land happy families and profitable businesses oh they're way different the other one's a collection of essays that i've written you're familiar with profit tips the right. week or twice monthly blog uh, i used to write dallas is writing it now uh, i had written i think 500 something like 500 columns over 17 years and i'd <laughs> i'd only repeated one i'm pretty proud of that it's always an original column i only repeated it once and that was a uh, something called three secret santa and i you know sometimes i get pretty full of myself and i just thought that was a pretty clever application of the three secrets for increasing profit the santa claus's workshop and i would never top that one so i did repeat that at christmas once <laughs> um but what we did is sort through those in those three themes, healthy land, happy families, and profitable businesses, which is the mission of ranch management consultants, and came up with a series of columns that I thought were the, the best of the best. And then we re-edited those so that they would connect and flow from one to the next to the next. And that's what that book is. Um, this book is, is more of, my wife doesn't like it when I call it a novel but it's more of a novel than anything else I can think of. And uh, yeah, it's not something I I'd never really expected to write a, a, a work of fiction. And I don't really think of it as, as a work of fiction because everything in there is based on experiences I've, I've had with people. Uh, but like I say, the names have been changed. So this is just way different than anything I'd, I'd written before. What do you think are, are some of the problems? I mean, some of the problems that you're helping people solve through this book, um, so some of the things that you had in mind as some of the bigger bigger issues facing uh, ranchers today that you're trying to help them think differently about? Oh, golly. Uh, there are a lot. I think one of the ones that's I, it's introduced almost diabolically in this book, because <laughs> I don't know that people realize that they're getting this until they're through the book. And that's a different take on the relationships they're in, whether it's mm. fathers and sons or husbands and wives, really learning how to listen to one another. Uh, you know, you, you cannot, I, I think actually the biggest problem we have in, in agriculture is not economic or financial or ecological. I think it's one of relationships. Uh, and I think it's that we don't know how to talk. And this isn't unique to agriculture. This, this is true to any business. We don't know how to talk to one another. And more, we don't know how to listen to one another. Uh, and actually, it's more than just relationships and business. I think it's relationships throughout society these days. We don't know how to communicate with one another. Um, we assume that we know what other people are thinking. And so we work, spend all our time trying to make others understand us. What we don't realize is until they're convinced we understand them, they have no interest in listening to what we have to say or what we are thinking or feeling. And so there's a healthy dose of, uh, of learning, actually some tools in here of improving communication and relationships and learning how to listen to one another. And whether it's the key character's dad or there's, well, anyway, that's, that's a theme that 
comes throughout the book, but I don't even, I don't think people are going to re- even be aware of it really until they're done with it. Mm. Um, economics and finance are certainly a big part of this book, and people will get the the tools to complete the ranching for profit economic planning process. Uh, but more than just the numbers and how to crunch the numbers, it's about how, what the numbers mean, and, and even bigger than that, it's about how to make decisions. So in the book, we introduce. Uh, for example, the key characters after they've gone through the economic process and after they've used the benchmarks to figure out what their profit drivers are and what the dead wood is, and there are tasks to help readers do that for their businesses. There's a, this isn't the direct line in there, but there's sort of a transition that says, okay, so now what? <laughs> and it leads them into a process called the decision grid because there's more to making the decisions than just the numbers. And this process identifies what are the key outcomes that we need from whatever decision it is we're going to make. And now let's look at the alternatives that we have. And the example it uses in the book is, are we going to grow, uh, raise our own heifers? Are we going to buy heifers? Are we going to buy mature cows? Um, You know, one of the things I think most people think in the cow-calf business is that they need replacement heifers. But one of the things I like to argue with people about is you don't need replacement heifers. You need replacement cows. You know, one way to get a replacement cow is grow a heifer into a cow. But if you take on the paradigm that, no, we don't need replacement heifers, it's cows we need to replace, it opens the door to other possibilities. And so what uh, in, I think it's the last chapter of the first section, uh, this is one of the issues that the key characters are facing. But, you know, if we're going to, they're looking at changing calving seasons and in doing that, should we be, do we need as much hay as we've been having? Should we now turn that into a stalker enterprise or should we keep paying it or should we have somebody come in and custom pay it? How do we make that decision? Well, part of it's crunching the numbers, but there's some other things. So how do you make that decision? Now that we've changed the calving season, what about a replacement strategy? Uh, Does it still make sense to raise our own replacements? And so it walks through, here is the process through which they make that decision. Now, the decision they wind up making will not be the right decision for everyone. But the process that they use to make that decision is a process that will work for everyone to figure out what is right for them. I, I, I guess one of the things I'm curious about, not having seen the book, um, your your previous book, uh, Healthy Land, Happy Families, Profitable Businesses, was, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but it was blurbed <laughs> by Wayne Fasholtz, Alan Nation, Fred Provenza, Joel Salatin, and Burke Tigert. That's a that's a pretty, pretty good lineup there. Uh, who who wrote who wrote blurbs for the for this one? You know, I didn't ask anybody to on this one, um, Clay. I was just uh, so busy getting it done, and I, it occurred to me that I could send out the preliminary copy and and ask pretty much those same guys for feedback. But it would delay the project by a month, mm. and there was some time pressure to get this thing out. So people attending the school this winter, December from December on would be able to get access to it. And I opted to get the thing done. I'm, I'm as pleased with this book as any project I've ever worked on though. So hopefully it won't be, uh, hopefully making a few sales will not be contingent on what these folks said. I have <laughs> sent, I am sending copies to everybody uh, that commented just as a, uh, as a thanks, but uh, not asking for any, any kind of comments on it. So just to make sure I understand the idea of concessionizing, I was thinking just as an example, again, as you said, not not a recommendation, but uh, if you were going to concessionize haymaking, you might go to making more hay on other people's land if 
that's what you want to do if you had the labor to do it, all of those ifs. But that would be another a way to concessionize that that capital asset. Yeah, well, so if you have a lot of equipment, you could either lease it to somebody. Um, there's an example actually in the book of, of a couple who had a lot of equipment, didn't want to make hay. And so they started a custom haying business, but they didn't want to run it either. So after a year, they got a, a young guy that used to work for them. And now they lease him uh, the equipment. So yeah, so that sort of thing is an example of, of concessionizing. Anything that pr- that creates an ongoing stream of income from your fixed assets that are currently just sitting there costing you money. Yeah, This relates a little bit back to some of the things that Robert Kiyosaki said about uh, uh, about liability. Are you familiar with what he says about liabilities and assets? No. Okay. Kiyosaki has a, has a very strange and wonderful definition of assets and liabilities that most bankers would take exception to. Mm. But he's got a point. Kiyosaki says a liability is anything that takes money out of my pocket. Whereas an asset is anything that puts money into my pocket. Mm. So take a look at, say, say, your pickup truck. All right. The bank lists your pickup truck on the asset side of your balance sheet. Kiyosaki says, no, 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 no. Your, your pickup truck is a liability because you have to put gas in it and you have to pay insurance on it and you pay interest and you pay depreciation and you have to license it. It does nothing but cost you money. So Kiyosaki says, if you're going to uh, create wealth, you have to minimize your liabilities. You, you know, so you sh- he's saying that you really ought to think twice about owning that pickup. Maybe you could lease it. Maybe you could a- avoid the need for it in the first place. Maybe you could hire somebody else to do stuff. But how can you surround yourself with assets, things that produce income, and get rid of liabilities? And it's it's, it's an interesting. I, I I don't take that to extremes, but it's an interesting challenge to yourself, especially for young people starting out. Um, how can I limit the liabilities that I surround myself with? You know, when you think of your home, you know, traditionally people think of their home as, as an asset and one way of building wealth, but your home doesn't produce income. Your home, there's taxes, there's insurance, there's, you know, the house payments, there's, you got the whole stuff. It does, uh, generally speaking, build equity, but that doesn't create cash flow. And so, uh, I'm not saying a person not not own their home. I own my home, and I'm I'm glad I did. I'm glad we we bought it when we did, and I'm I think we've got three years left on our 30 year mortgage. Um, but um, it's an interesting challenge to look at ways that you can surround yourself with things that create income and produce cash flow, as opposed to the traditional feeling of thinking about surrounding yourself with all these things that do nothing but cost you money. Are we just over a year from you handing over the reins? Is that is that we right? Are. We are. It's a year and what is it? The fifteenth today. Yep. Um, year and fifteen days. How how's that been for you? Oh wow, it's been. Uh, I don't think this has been a very good test of what retirement's <laughs> supposed to be like, for a couple of reasons. One is absolutely horrid, but turned out wonderful. On um, the it was a year and ten days ago. My sister had a serious accident on the farm. Uh, she had a fall uh, about 15 feet and landed on a concrete pad on mm-hmm. her head. Um, and was on, she had brain surgery. They took out a three by three inch piece of her skull. Um, and this was early October last year. They didn't replace that piece of her skull until February. 
I mean, it was out of her head for mm. four, four full months. Um, and she was unconscious for over two weeks. She was in the ice. And thank God this was before all this COVID stuff. Mm. Uh, can you can you imagine having this go on with somebody you love and not mm. being able to be there? Jeez, that would just it was awful enough the way it was. Um, the doctors told us the first night that she wasn't going to make it, um, mm. and I'm starting to tear up just thinking about it. Uh, for the next couple of weeks, it was touch and go. And for the next couple of weeks, is yeah, well, she's going to make it, but she might not be able to talk again, or she and she probably won't be able to walk without assistance. Uh, but once we got to February and they put the piece that <laughs> they put her head back together, essentially, mm. um, the progress just accelerated uh, like like nobody could imagine. And uh, about a month ago, she went on a hike with her husband without any kind of assistance, just in, mm. it's a trail in the little area near Lake Berryess and near here. I think it's probably burned out now, but, um, you know, it's a steep little trail and that she could make that hike. Uh, She's back. You know, she's got her driver's license again. And uh, I, I think she wow. fatigues a little bit early, uh, easily, more easily now. But that's just having <laughs> you can imagine being out of service for four or five months mm. and it might take a little time to regain some strength. But um, so there was a probably a two or three month period where I was at the hospital, if not every day, then every other day. And so I think this first year of retirement, um, Probably wasn't a very good test. And then, of course, with the COVID going on, we had some exciting trips planned that we mm. wound up uh, not doing. But then I, th I think our problem next year is all the honeydew projects got taken care of. <laughs> so we better be able to travel next year. Right. Yep. Yeah. And I, what, what else, what have you been doing? I mean, COVID aside, you continued to teach uh, some schools, or have you have you not done one since the one you did in New York? I haven't done one since New York, um, and uh, I've facilitated a couple of EL meetings. Essentially, anything that Dallas feels like I can be useful with, uh, I'm I'm ready to do that. Uh, it's a, a very much reduced role, which is fine. I'm uh, I'm a pole worker. Not a pole dancer, a pole <laughs> worker. I'm, I've got my 200-page pole worker training man. I'm the uh, provisional ballots clerk for our local polling place, and I've never been a pole worker before. I've always had to vote absentee because I've been out of out doing RMC stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but my big chat task this weekend is to learn what I'm supposed to do to uh, to do that. So I've been doing that. Um, Kathy's been doing volunteer work with the Natural History Association here, and uh, we are very engaged and and as busy as we need to be. What are what are some of the things you learned uh, through the transition process? Uh, I think sometimes you learn things, but you don't realize you're learning them until you've been on the backside of ways. Uh, what are some of the things you learned through the transition process with RMC to Dallas? You know, I didn't think I was ready to let go. Um, my wife was ready. To, I, I called my wife when we were running the company. I called my wife, the vice president of everything that nobody else wanted to do. Mm. Uh, I mean, she had all the lousy jobs, you know, dealing with insurance companies and all the administrative oversight and things that literally no one else wanted to do. Um, and she was ready to, to step back. I thought, yeah, I got another year or two in me, but here was Dallas and Dallas was ready to go. And he was obviously the guy, right guy to take the helm. 
And since Kathy was ready to step back and Dallas was ready to step up, I thought, well, okay, you know, it's, I can step back a little earlier than I intended. But man, oh man, it's been so easy to step back. Um, and it's, it's probably a better question to ask, to ask Dallas because he may think that I'm, I'm interfering in ways that I can't imagine. But, uh, but I don't think I have. And I, what surprised me is how easy it is or how easy I found it to let go. And maybe part of that is just having extreme confidence in, in Dallas's uh, intellect and character. Um, that he, you know, he's going to do a great job. Part of it is having put systems in place that kind of relieve him from having to think about a lot of the minutia so he can focus on the big things. And part of it is, you know, part of it's just being able to get back in routine. Uh, one of the things that drove me a little bit nuts about running the company is there's, there's so much travel involved. I don't think they're I don't think since I bought the company, there was a month that went by that I wasn't going someplace. Mm. And sometimes I was going three or four or five places in a month. Since uh, since October, I've lost twenty about 25 pounds. <laughs> and I don't think I was, I, maybe I was a little too fat, but I wasn't way too fat. Mm -hmm. But it's just having a routine and being able to, you know, I, I go for a walk with my wife every day and just having a routine, being able to do that. Uh, and then get into the whatever the project is for the day. That's been that's been awesome. Maybe that's the biggest surprise of all is uh, how easy it is to. Yeah, you know, I think that is the biggest surprise. How easy it's been to let go. Yeah, it, it's a a routine that doesn't involve getting on a plane or waiting to get on a plane. <laughs> yeah, and these days getting on a plane doesn't sound very exciting to me. No, no, not at all. Um, what. What are some of the things that facilitated that successful transition uh, in in your mind? What what made that uh, work? Well, I think having supreme confidence in Dallas is one. Um, you know, this is the advantage of of not having. Uh, well, RMC is a family business, but it's not one I ever intended to leave to my kids. My kids have careers of their own, doing other unrelated uh, but you know interesting and worthwhile things. And what a blessing that is to not even be tempted to try to put my kids in positions of authority in ranch management consultants. It would have added a whole nother layer of emotion and complexity that we simply didn't have to deal with. Mm. You know, so we were able to not that I don't know if he found us or we found him or some combination of the two. But so here is this guy who is supremely qualified to do this. And, you know, so we look at our kids and we assume they're qualified because they have, well, they have to be qualified. They have half my DNA, <laughs> uh, but that doesn't qualify them to run the business. I mean, uh, just because they have half your DNA doesn't predispose them to managerial excellence. And so it's hard to look at our kids objectively and really assess what is their skill level? What is their aptitude? Are they are they really competent managers? And if they're not, what training do they need to become competent managers? I didn't have to do any of that. You know, I could just go out and find, and that's a little overstated because I didn't necessarily go on a search to find Dallas. Uh, it was just obvious that here is a guy who is competent and qualified to, to do this and has the desire to do it. Um, so I took care of all of that stuff. Didn't have to worry about competency. Here he is. Uh, the other thing is, while 
some things have changed because of technology has changed. There are lots of systems that we have in place in RMC that we put in place over the last several years of, you know, everything from how you pack school supplies to how you enter. So when somebody expresses interest in the data in the, in the school, how do you enter that in the database and how do you mm. develop that prospect? How do you assign people up for the school? They didn't have to start from scratch working through how you do all that stuff. You know, that stuff is, has been, has been figured out already. And I'm sure they'll improve on the systems we had, but you know, that's one of the things I, I think we assume just because we have a big pile of assets and we're busy all the time <laughs> that we have that ranching is a business. But ranching is more than just a big pile of assets and a whole bunch of jobs. A business, a, a real business, has systems that produce results dependably. So, you know, you look at a ranch and um, Smith & Jones Cattle Company. Okay, so what is Smith & Jones Cattle Company? It's probably a bunch of cattle and a bunch of land and probably a bunch of equipment. But does it have systems documented systems where somebody else could step in and run that company uh, in, in just a moment's notice without missing a beat? And the answer is probably no. You know, and, you, and you look at what a business really is and what it really does, most ranches wouldn't qualify. You know, the government treats them like businesses, we're taxed like businesses, but, uh, you know, and that's really one of the things we do at the school is help people uh, reorganize the ranch and refocus the ranch, turning it into a real business. And I, I think some people find that intimidating is probably not quite the right word, but I don't think most people understand the power of doing that. Um, it really is a powerful thing. It's um, it takes it, it turns it into something that you're working for. Most people wind up mm. feeling like they work for the ranch more than it works for them. You know, we talk about this ranching lifestyle, but when a ranch is supported by off-farm income, when you're going deeper in debt, when you're at the mercy of volatile markets and even more volatile weather these days, um, when you don't have, you know, when you when you have the 2, 2 a.m. blink session where you're, you can't get back to sleep because you're worried about this or that and you don't know how to deal with these things, there's no plan. Uh, that's not a great lifestyle. And when you transform this into a business, you do have a plan. You have worked through contingencies. You've built in buffers to deal with drought and changes in prices. You know how you're going to respond to these things. And it sure makes it easier to sleep at night, I'll tell you that. So I, I think the thing that really intimidates people from that is they, that they've never really considered the difference between owning a job and owning a business. <laughs> and they don't know how. No one ever showed them how to run a business. They know how to raise livestock, but they don't know how to run a business that raises livestock. Mm. You know, and, and unless somebody shows you how to do that, how are you supposed to know? Uh, so anyway, that's I, I didn't mean for this to turn into a sales pitch for the school, but that's essentially what the what the school has always been about is how to how to uh, turn that into a business, how to turn the ranch into a business. How will you talk about transition differently? Uh... As a as you're on the backside of this process, when you're talking well, about transition to ranchers, that's probably a more interesting question than you counted on. <laughs> um, Dallas has actually asked me to build a a two or three day class 
on uh, on succession planning for ranch management consultants. And I think we'll probably launch that. You know, we'll see what happens with COVID, but we'll probably launch that in the spring. I don't know if it'll just be for graduates of the school or if it'll be open to anybody. But um, so that's a question I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit. And I don't know that I've, uh, I don't know that I will add anything new. I think maybe I'll just emphasize, it'll, it'll be a change in emphasis on some things. And one of the things is, well, I just, I mentioned this a little while ago, and that's a, a real honest, you might even say a brutal assessment as to the qualifications of the people who are in the succession plan. Mm. What are they capable, what do they want to do? What are they capable of doing? There is a process we already do uh, or walk people through as uh, five basic steps to it. And that's really step as part of step number five is figuring out who's going to uh, be responsible for what. But I, I think the big thing there is just to be real clear on, do we have the right people in the right seats on this thing? Mm. And if they're not, then how are we going to get the right people or how are we going to get those people trained up so that they're competent to produce the results we need to produce? We don't, you know, we don't do our kids any favors when we put them in a position where they can't be successful. I think that was dynamite. I mean, what you what you shared about your own kids, they've they've got just because they've got your DNA doesn't mean they have to become the new Mr. or Mrs. RMC. Uh they yeah. can, they can go on do their own thing because that's what they're interested in and uh that's that's cool. I I really appreciate it. You know, it's that. interesting that um I I think some people look for validation in their kids following in their hmm. footsteps. And I can, I can relate to that. And it wasn't something that I was it's it's not something I ever counted on, but uh, I don't know how much you know about what my daughter's up to. But my daughter's an actress. You know, who would ever thought you could make your living as an actress? But she's been in, you know, she loves Shakespeare. She's been in some movies. She was in the movie Vice um, about Dick Cheney. Um, she's been in Toyota commercials and Microsoft commercials and, and things like that. She uh, has been putting together a syllabus for a class, that she, a college course that she's uh, talking about teaching. And it's on the business of acting. Mm. And it's about, you know, because actors are pretty much self-employed and you've got to market yourself and you've got to manage your money and you've got to do all these things that any small business would have to do. And I was looking at the syllabus she put together and it looks an awful like, like a ranching for profit school for actors. <laughs> so uh, it was interesting that uh, I didn't need validation of my kids following in my footsteps but there was a little bit of it right there and i was i was uh maybe it's just because it kind of caught me off guard to see the similarities and that gee wow she really did pick up a lot of this this stuff and uh and that was kind of that was pretty cool yeah that is and that's kind of one of the things that i've realized through this the the podcast is this isn't necessarily a ranching podcast like i thought it was when i first started it's a it's a business podcast. We just happen to talk about cows as production units and, and some of those things rather than whatever other people might be using to generate uh, value. That's what I like about your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Could you share, and, and we're, I appreciate your time today, uh, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to share some of your thoughts on, on Stan Parsons, uh, given his passing uh, since the last time we talked anyways. Oh man, uh, I wasn't, anticipating that stan was a brilliant guy 
for those of you who don't know, Stan died in, uh, I guess it was early August, maybe late July, about anyway, it was two or three months ago, died from COVID. Um, mm. He was 80 years old, uh, originally from Rhodesia, what became uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, he lived in a retirement home in South Africa with his wife, Hazel. Uh, two absolutely amazing people. It's hard. Stan came to the United States with Alan Savory as partners. Alan brought the ecological and grazing side of the curriculum. Stan brought the animal husbandry and economics side. He's got a PhD in economics from mm. Purdue. Um, and unfortunately, neither one brought a whole lot of people skills <laughs> to the <laughs> partnership. But uh, uh, what, a, what a team. And uh, anyway, they had some differences of opinion on some things and some, anyway, some issues that drove them apart. But um, I look at, and I remember when I first, I was a range student at UC Davis, and my professors talked about these guys as though they were snake oil salesmen mm. and heretics. And of course, when somebody, you know, you're a college student and somebody tells you, oh, don't go listen to these guys. <laughs> well, of course, they're the guys you want to go hear, right? So I did. I went to hear Alan Safer and then I went to hear Stan Parsons and it didn't sound like snake oil. Sound, in fact, it was, you know, I remember I had a wildlife uh, nutrition course and I had an agristology course and I had a business course and this stuff. And when I went to this, to, to their programs, it wasn't these separate silos of things. It was all one thing. And I realized that the, as long as the animal science guy was going to teach animal science and the mm -hmm. economist was going to teach e economics and the range guy was going to teach range, then we were going to have a problem because these aren't three different things. It's one thing. And that thing is called business. Uh, and it, that was really the the big takeaway I had from meeting these guys for the first time is that that all this these aren't separate things it's all part of one thing mm. and um, I remember I went through the holistic management program and I thought well this is really interesting but I really didn't know what to do about it I didn't have a good plan leaving the course and then I went to see the Stan's course the Ranching for Profit School and in all fairness I think having attended the holistic management course gave me a leg up because some of the con some of the concepts were similar. And so I'd already had a little bit of exposure through holistic management. But Stan's focus was as much as it was on principle, it was on, okay, now what are you going to do about it? How are you going to actually apply this? Um, and when I left Stan's course, I left with a plan. And when I was at that course, Stan asked me, I remember um, Stan was a brilliant teacher. And at that first course, uh, through the whole class, I thought he was talking specifically to me, but he was one of those guys where I'm sure everybody in that class thought he was talking specifically to them. And one of the things he said right off the bat, I felt like he was just staring through the back of my head. He said, I can't teach you a thing. And I was sitting there thinking, well, how do you know that? Um, but what he was really saying is that truth can't be taught. It has to be discovered. And the way he could do is create an opportunity for me to learn. But it was up to me. To learn you know i had to, i had to i was gonna have to do some work here um and at that school he actually asked me if i was interested in teaching with him hmm. and i thought this was I, I didn't really take him seriously to me it was like uh, garth brooks asking you if you wanted to sing harmony with him <laughs> it's like yeah right and but it turned out he was serious and 
that uh, that changed the trajectory of my life. Mm. I was with the University of California at the time. I, I spent 15 years with the University of California in, in extension. And then uh, in the last 10 of that, last eight of that, I was, I'd take leave without pay and teach ranching for profit schools and do work for Stan. And uh, I wound up going to Africa and Australia, um, taught schools in Mexico, uh, Canada. And then when he wanted to step back from the business and go back home to Africa, he asked me if I would buy it. And Kathy and I, uh, we, we actually managed it for him for two years and then we bought it mm. and uh, ran it for, I guess we ran it for a total of 21. We owned it for 19 of those. Um, but uh, I mean, my kids have been on safaris w- with me in Africa, um, you know, New Zealand, Australia, uh, things that we never would have done had Stan not opened that door. And I remember my mom, uh, she's been gone for a little over 10 years now, but she used to say, what's life for if it isn't to help one another? And what a great way to, you know, what a great philosophy. And Stan opened up or at least uh, gave us this platform because that's, you know, what is RMC for if it isn't to help people? Mm. And so every day going to work, it's like, oh boy, who do we get to help today? And uh, so between the philosophy that my mom raised me with and Stan opening the door to this vehicle that was all about uh, helping people improve their land well going back to our mission to improve their land their lives and their and their uh, their business mm. um and stan made that all possible for me mm. so i uh is he was a brilliant man great teacher and um anyway and i miss him mm. thank you thank you for that um are, are there good university systems today that are are uh, examining the whole, or is it still uh, still kind of siloed? I don't know. I really don't. I I was so busy running RMC that I didn't have time to or the inclination to figure out what they were doing. Um, I have a hunch it's still pretty siloed, but I don't know that there might be some pretty good programs out there. That said, I think some people. I, I feel like I've got standing to be able to be critical of the university. It's sort of like if, if you have a sibling, you know, you, you can fight like cats and dogs with your brothers or sisters and you can insult them and do all that. But if you insult my sister, or if you insult my brother, you and I are going to have words. <laughs> um, you know, after my dad retired professor emeritus of the university of California, I was there for 15 years. Um, I, I feel like I've got, I feel like it's part of my family. And I feel, feel like I've got some standing to be able to be critical because I see so much potential and I saw so much that, more that could have been done than they were doing. So I think some people think that I don't think a university education is worth getting. I do. I do think a university education is worth getting. But I also don't think you go to university to learn a career. I don't think you go there to learn a skill set. I think you go there to expand your mind. Mm. Uh, where else, where else will you ever be where there are people who are, are theologians and are, uh, who know history from, uh, the Greeks to, mm. to now and, um, you know, 
all of these different disciplines from philosophy to to anthropology to uh, well, you name it. There's there's somebody there who knows. It. Where else will you ever be in an environment where you have that richness of knowledge? And it, unfortunately, as students, we're so focused on our major uh, that we just buzz through this and we ignore everything that's not related to our major that the university won't force us to take. Well, I I really think a liberal arts major may be the most useful, maybe the most practical major for somebody who wants to be a farmer or a rancher because it expands their mind and you learn how to think. And if you learn how to think, you know, really to consider all kinds of points of view and be able to uh, process that, then I think you've come away with something that'll apply to anything you ever do. Uh, I heard, I saw a statistic the other day that only about 20% of college graduates have a career related to what they made mm-hmm. again. Um, so I, I think maybe the universities do us a disservice by asking us to pick a major. And I, I think maybe we ought to be doing the opposite. I think maybe we ought to just be getting the most, at least the first year or two, just get a really eclectic taste of all these different things. I think that would be a much more useful way to go to school, but that's just me. <laughs> well, very good. Uh, really appreciate your time today. Uh, we've sure. kind of, we've kind of, uh, tip the hat to it on the way by, but I, I do want to give you an opportunity to share about uh, where you will be in the near future, uh, what your what your uh, schedule looks like. Well, in the near future, I'm going to be uh, water water sealing my deck. <laughs> um, uh, I was thinking I might go up and uh, go on a hike tomorrow up in, up in the Sierra. So that's the near future. Uh, I don't have anything booked right now other than uh, i'm doing a couple of ranching for profit schools in january uh, hopefully i'll still remember some of this stuff by then <laughs> uh i think i'm doing the school in billings in mid it's i think it's in mid-january and then i'm doing one in hershey pennsylvania of all places um and for that week hershey pennsylvania will be the ranching capital of north america <laughs> uh i think that's in late january or maybe yep. the first week of february something like that late january Late January. Uh, you know my schedule better than I do. I'm just looking at but, the. Uh, I'm cheating. I'm looking at the at the schedule, the school. Yeah, well, that's okay. Billings that's okay. is January 10th through the 16th, and Harrisburg is January 24th through the 30th. So yeah, you know, you know, you might think about uh, that Pennsylvania school. It's like, well, who in their right mind would go to go to that other than people from Pennsylvania? Well, I'll tell you what. I did a school in Vermont. Uh, you know ranching capital of North America, Vermont, right? Um, that school was one of the most interesting schools I've done. We had people from, we had 36 people attending, I think it was. We had people from uh, Australia, from Canada, from, I think it was 22 different U.S. states attending that school, including Oregon and Wyoming and Colorado and Montana. And Texas, um, I tell you what, it was the, one of the most diverse and interesting schools I've ever done. And that I, I think I don't think people understand how important that is to the experience. So the last thing I'd want to do uh, is go to a school with everybody where everybody was from my area, because everybody's going to share the similar paradigms. Everybody's had similar experiences. The best school you ever go to will be the one that has the most diversity. Uh, you know, so if you have a choice as to which school to go to, go to one that's not in your area. 
and you're more likely to be exposed to that kind of diversity. Yeah, uh, and I, I don't think people can appreciate just how big a deal that is until they've experienced that. Yeah, so, anyway. very good, very good. Uh, thank you, Dave, for your time, and thank oh. you for your years of investment and your continued investment in the <laughs> ranch, the ranching industry. Well, thanks, Clay. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Well, very good, very good stuff there. Really appreciate uh, Dave coming back on the podcast again and uh, for him putting in the effort to do this work and then to share just some of the thoughts about where his head has been at recently and uh, really, really appreciate his openness and his honesty. And next week, I'm really excited to share with you uh, a recent webinar that I was a part of uh, doing the Hannah Ranch movie night for the CSSRM webinar uh, really thankful for all the participants uh, allowing me to share that. There's some really good stuff there uh, about mental health. If you want to prepare yourself for that uh, webinar discussion, uh, we will. you could go to the uh, Amazon Prime or iTunes and track down the movie, the Hannah Ranch movie. It's H-A-N-N-A uh, Ranch, and just search for that on, on iTunes or Amazon Prime, and you will find it there. Uh, really good words from uh, Commissioner Kate Greenberg, for, uh, the Colorado Department of Agriculture Commissioner Kate Greenberg. Also, Maggie Hanna, uh, one of the Hanna family members that's in the documentary, and then the director of the film, Mitch Dickman. So if you want to prepare yourself for that, you can go track down the Hanna Ranch movie on Amazon Prime or on iTunes and watch that, and then uh, join us for a little bit of a after-the-movie discussion uh, on the next episode of the Working Cows podcast coming your way real soon. We invite you to visit workingcows.net to subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher. You'll also find detailed show notes pages, resources from our guests, and the industry leaders who have influenced them. For more ideas on putting your cows to work for you in a more profitable way, tune in next week.